Welcome again. My name is Peter. I'm one of the priests here at Church of the Cross. It's so good to worship with you. Uh, it's so much fun to have so many of you here and also tracking with us online. I even think there were some uh, non-human participants in our worship a few moments ago. There were some birds that flew in, and so all creatures, great and small, and all that kind of thing. Uh, as many of you, of course, will know, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. 20 years on, the effects of those horrific events of that day were, were summarized in countless articles and think pieces, various memorials this past week, this weekend. The collective trauma of that Tuesday morning two decades ago has, by nearly any measure, transformed our world, changed us, changed the world in ways that are still unfolding. And in response to such things, we call out, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. In our reading this morning, however, from the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul directs our attention, our view, to an even more transformative event or series of events motivated by the Lord's mercy. The gift of Jesus, this transformative, incongruous gift given to all. Over the past number of months, we have been journeying through the book of Romans, and we've allowed the Apostle Paul to recount for us the blessings and benefits of life in Christ. Through his writings, we've been reminded, or we've seen for the first time, the God who does not fail. This has been the focus for Paul and for us, the ways that he overcomes the obstacles of our own sinfulness, the powers of death and evil in the world, the ineffectual, stifling nature of the law. In Jesus Christ, God has proven his faithfulness and power, his love and commitment to you in this undeniable and transformative way, in a, a way that changes things, that must change things. This morning, we're taking a leap in that journey through Romans. Two weeks ago, we finished with Romans chapter 8. And we're jumping forward this week, not because Romans 9 to 11 are unimportant or uninspired in some way. They're, in fact, among the most famous portions of Paul's writings in the New Testament. And those chapters are specifically focused on this thorny question of how the people of Israel remain central to the purposes of God, even as his plan of salvation for all the nations unfolds. That's important stuff. And Paul's point there in Romans 9 through 11 culminates with the end of Romans 11. And his conclusion is that God does not fail, has not failed the people of Israel. In the final verses of chapter 11, immediately before our reading this morning, they crescendo with this recounting of the mercies of God upon Israel and upon all the peoples of the earth. And they conclude with Paul exalting in, God's glo in gl the glory of God's character, his plans in the world. He says, for the gifts of God, the calling of God are irrevocable, won't be removed. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And he declares, oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, inscrutable are his ways. Who's given a gift to God? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, Paul writes. Amen. And all of that then leads to our reading this morning and to the final four chapters of Romans. 
which are all focused on how now to live in light, in view, in response to the mercy of God played out in Jesus Christ. They describe what a life lived in view of the mercies of God looks like. Now that we're assured of God's faithfulness, his power, his favor and kindness, how do we live? And this is why we are jumping forward. Because that question, it seems to me, is one that we especially might consider this fall, in this moment. That's worth considering always, but especially in these times where we're not quite through a pandemic, where there's still so much uncertainty, where all that we've experienced over the last 18 months, where what is coming to light in the life of our country raises questions of what does faithfulness look like? What does it mean to be the people of God living in light of Jesus' mercy? What does it mean to live in view of God's grace and kindness in 21st century America, in 21st century Austin? Last week, as we did the liturgy tour, I talked about the gospel procession and how it symbolizes that the gospel is at the center of all that we do as a church, all that we seek to do. These chapters, Romans 12 to 16, outline what that actually looks like, what it means to be a people who live together centered on the gospel. And that will be our focus in the weeks to come. And this morning, what I'd like to do in the time that we have left is simply highlight a couple of broad features from Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Broad features of what a life lived in response to the gospel, to the mercies of God might look like. A few observations that will be themes in the weeks and months ahead as we unpack these chapters. And so the the first thing, the first observation, the first feature that we can, we must say in light of Paul's words here, is that the whole of life lived in response to what God has done is based on his mercy. This is so important. Therefore, Paul begins, in light of all that we've understood God to have done, in view of God's mercy, based, founded there upon the merciful nature of his character, his actions in history. Live, respond, be changed. The basis of life, faithful Christian life, is the mercy of God. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, there are very few commandments. The primary focus is description of what God has done, what he's doing. There are a lot of indicative statements for you linguistic nerds out there. But from Romans 12 onward, there are all kinds of verbs in the imperative tense. There are commands given to the church, given to us. Live like this. Do this. And I suspect that in the weeks to come, as we explore these commands, the Holy Spirit will convict us. Remind us, call us to greater, deeper obedience. will remind us of the ways we don't live in such a way. That is a good thing. Yet there's a danger that in reading these commands, in feeling their force, we will become somehow focused on our own action, on what we've done or left undone. Or that we'll understand the commands to come as an expression of something more austere or stern in the character of God. But Paul doesn't write here in view of God's holiness or in light of God's judgment on the basis of God's righteousness. 
He might have all those qualities, the action of judgment, accurately describe who God is, how he acts. But no, Paul starts here. The life that we're called to is a life lived in view, in view of God's mercy, shaped by that specific quality, lived in response to this characteristic. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in view of the mountains and close to the Pacific Ocean. I was not, I am not like a huge skier or windsurfer or sailor. I'm not like an outdoorsman, I wouldn't say. But those geographic qualities, the mountains, the sea, had an impact on my life when I lived there. I realize that now when I go back and when I experience feelings of nostalgia for my hometown, the mountains, the sea, just their presence shaped me, shaped my experience. I lived in view of them. There is something similar here in the words of Paul. The shape of our days are fashioned, formed by the knowledge of God's abundant mercy. That he's quick to forgive, that he desires to show grace, to be merciful. These are the topographical features of life in Christ. They are to form and shape how we conduct ourselves. Paul here points, I think, to the mercy of God for both theological and psychological reasons. In the biblical story, the mercy of God precedes and forms the basis for the obedience of God's people, right? The, the exodus, deliverance, liberation from Egypt precedes the giving of the law. The Christian ethic of sacrificial love is founded on God's gracious giving of himself in Jesus Christ on the cross. God's mercy precedes, it's the basis for any call upon you and I theologically. And more than that, psychologically, pastorally, mercy produces a transformed life in a way that few other qualities can to whom are we most likely to entrust ourselves? To whom are we most likely to lift our hearts? To those who have shown themselves merciful, who have pity in the, the language of our gospel reading this morning. To the one whom we know to be gracious, compassionate, loving to the end. To him we present ourselves. In the weeks to come, as we move through the commandments and calls, it is likely, like I said, at some point, all of us will feel the ways we do fall short, the ways we don't live out our identity as those in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 12 suggests to me that the first response to that is to ask the Holy Spirit to bring the mercies of God freshly in view. That is the basis of your obedience that you would see the mercy of God, that you would acknowledge in a deeper, fuller way, that you would experience his kindness, his favor towards you. That produces transformation in a way that few other qualities, perhaps no other can. The basis of changed life in Christ is the mercy of God. A second observation about the life that Paul outlines in this chapter and in the chapters to come, is that this kind of life is active and embodied. I'm cheating here a little bit and combining two. But I urge you, Paul writes, 
Offer your bodies, present your bodies to God. This is your spiritual worship. I don't know if this is actually true, but I've heard that the U.S. Marine Corps at one time or still does have a certain phrase. They say, God can have your soul, but your body belongs to the core. They use something saltier, a term saltier than the body, but I think you get the meaning. That might be an extreme version. Your, your body belongs to the earth. Your body belongs to the Marine Corps. God can have your soul. That might be an extreme expression of it, but we're all tempted at times, I think, to separate out spiritual commitments from bodily commitments. To emphasize alone, perhaps, a relational, abstract aspect to what it means to be in Christ, to, to make our response to him a private matter of the heart. But the language that Paul uses in Romans 12 and in the chapters to follow is concrete, is bodily. The terms used here for offering up our bodies in worship refer to the people of Israel's sacrificial worship of Yahweh in the Old Testament, a bodily, bloody thing, right? It was tangible. There were smells, sights, things that you tasted and experienced in the tabernacle or in the temple. And Paul here is extending that language for Israel's worship to the whole of human existence, the whole of your life. He's claiming that the power of God's mercy, the power of the gospel that we've talked about in this series is such that it affects life in its totality, that no part of your life is left untouched by the truth of God's mercy shown to you in Jesus Christ. There's an application here of what occurred in sacred spaces, right? In the temple, where relationship with God was imminent and immediate for the people of Israel. An application of all of that to what we might call the secular realm, to everyday life. Everything becomes sacred in a way. The whole of life, your entire existence, becomes an arena, the arena of worship to God. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too gross or embodied. Nothing is left out. Your life, as it now exists presently, is the context of worship based upon God's mercy. So how you think and believe, yes, the, the discipling, the shaping of your emotions and how you feel, of course, but also what you do with your body, what you do with your money, with your food, with your trash, with your time, all of it, Paul is saying, is an offering unto the Lord. Swiss theologian Emil Brunner, writing in the middle of the 20th century, reflects on this passage and says, Jesus Christ, in becoming our Savior, becomes also the Lord of our everyday life, so that our Christian position, our Christian faith, must demonstrate itself in the particular details of practical life. Your life now, the arena of God's worship. Not as it might be one day, not if only such and such things happened and came to pass, not just in the, the spirit, not just in your personal private heart, but in the stuff of your life. Paul's exhortation here is the natural implication of the statement that Jesus is Lord. Anything less than the whole of our bodily existence presented to God is a disaster for our claims about who Jesus is. It undermines them. The belief that we can confess Jesus is Lord with our lips, but deny him by actions in some way is theologically nonsensical. 
it doesn't accord with the witness of scripture. And you don't have to be a student of history to know that it is a catastrophe for Christian witness in the world whenever it occurs. What we will see in the weeks to come is that the life of faith in response to the mercies of God plays out in every sphere of our lives. Every sphere. It's embodied. It touches on the whole of the human person. And of course, this kind of offering then, the whole of our lives, does not occur by accident. The transformation that Paul calls for here in response to the gospel is, of course, the work of God's mercy and grace. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, to use language from Romans 8. Yet that work involves our, your cooperation, my cooperation. It involves our action, our will too. Anglican priest and theologian Martin Thornton used at one time the metaphor of a canal or channel of God's grace in the gospel, in the the faith that's been handed down to us as the church. God's grace, he contends, flows freely, is available to every person. And he goes on to say that God has shown us clearly what it means to receive from this channel of grace. Are you thirsty for grace? Do you long, do you yearn for more of his grace in your life? Thornton's point is God has shown you what you need to do to lay hold of that. He suggests that God has given his church, the people of God, this clear rule of life, a a rhythm of practices that intentionally, wholeheartedly engaged in will make us proficient in the grace of God. In the same way, a personal trainer might tell you to do squats or burpees or planks as the basic actions, the fundamental things that will make you proficient, healthy. Thornton suggests that God has given the church the sacraments, embodied worship, a rhythm of reading the Bible and praying in the daily office, in what he terms private prayer, practices that equip us to recall God's promises and presence with us. As this basic rule, this exercise regimen, as a means of growing in the grace of God. He specifically describes them as a means of offering ourselves, our time, our bodies to the Lord, giving our time, our attention to him. We might quibble with like, well, what actions and that sort of thing. But Thornton's basic conviction, I think, is true. That the life devoted to these weekly, daily, hourly practices will inevitably, by the grace of God, grow in the grace of God. And Paul's urging here seems to suggest that an act of response offering our lives to God affects change in us. It's this intentional path of transformation and renewal that we can, that we are called to engage in, in view of God's mercy. God has shown us what it is to offer ourselves to him. And Thornton's point is, it works. And that is the final observation, the final feature as we enter into this section of Romans 12 to 15 in the weeks to come. This way of life fundamentally works. It is a fruitful, productive way of life. Perhaps not in the way that the world, that the present age, what Paul writes here is the the realm of sin and death. Not perhaps in the way that the world recognizes, 
but in accord with God's purposes and plans, with what is coming, new creation. This kind of life, it's working out, is a result of a life that reflects, resembles the good, the true, the beautiful. In an elemental kind of way, it meshes with God's purposes. The picture here that Paul uses of a mind renewed is a description of of practical reason, wisdom, and like moral imagination that accords with God's character. And it's in contrast with a life under sin and a life under the law that Paul has previously described. What Paul is describing here in Romans 12 suggests a certain freedom, lightness, goodness that comes from knowing the character of God intimately, loving him, being acquainted with his ways in the world, such that your life isn't characterized by disordered passions, but neither is it characterized by this like fearful adherence to an external standard. What's described here is a life of knowing and doing the will of God in freedom lightly with this life-giving confidence. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been spending a bit of time at the skate park over by House Park at Lamar and 12. My son is wanting to learn to know how to skateboard, and I know next to nothing about skateboarding. But we're trying. And when he goes, he asks me what he should do, and I don't really know what to tell him. But we're starting with what seem like the most basic things, like standing on the board, balancing, (laughs) moving in a straight line, basic turns, moving up and down on a slope or a ramp. I don't even know what all the terms are, but he's basically doing drills, repetition and practice. He's getting the hang of it. And from what I see, that's what a lot of people do, trying to perfect a certain trick or a particular move, doing it over and over and over. But in the time that we've spent at the skate park, there are moments, there are times where certain people put it all together. They drop into the bowl or the half pipe and they rip through the park, doing all manner of turns and tricks, seamlessly moving, weaving, improvising to avoid others or whoever the muse moves them. This, it seems to me, is the kind of life that Paul is describing in verse two of our reading renewed, transformed, testing, approving the will of God. It suggests this life of seamless union with the purposes and plans of God, with his mercy, his goodness, his grace, his power and holiness. It's a life in which things in a way have come together. Like I said, not by worldly standards of success, but in accordance with the mercy of God, the way of the cross, the abundant life that Jesus promises. It suggests this intimacy and facility with the virtues that Jesus exemplified. Not living virtuously because we ought to and someone's watching, but because this is what it means to live newly, fully in Christ. And we ourselves are being renewed. Paul suggests that that kind of life where it comes together is the result of a life presented to God. That kind of life is yours in Christ, together as the people of God. The second person pronouns throughout these verses are all plural. This is the description of what life as the church is to be like. All y'all offering your bodies, all y'all renewed, made new, transformed, 
offered together as one single living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Life together in the view of God's mercy. Life together renewed in the good, pleasing, and perfect will of the Father. This life will be our focus in the short season ahead, the weeks and months ahead, to explore and better understand, but also to lay hold of and grow into, to live. For again, this life is yours in Christ, ours in Christ. Let us accept nothing less than the transformed and renewed existence he has for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.